Gabby Dunn, and I'm still very bad with money. So, in 2009, I got an internship at The Daily Show, and that was a dream come true, and it was incredible, and I had literally written a very embarrassing essay in high school about how my dream was to work at The Daily Show. It's in some kind of book of, like, best high school writing, 2006, so if you can find that, burn it. It was a dream job. It was in New York City, and it was for the summer, and the problem was that it was unpaid. It's an unpaid internship, so I was getting college credit to be there. However, it was a 40-hour-a-week job, and I wasn't making any money. <laughs> and so I started pawning stuff uh, in order to pay my rent. One time I, like, pawned some speakers, I pawned a ring, and then I eventually ran out of stuff, and I called my parents, and I told them I had to quit the internship and I had to move home they were like wait wait no like maybe we can do something and I was like there's no option it ended up that my grandmother I had a phone call with her where I was sitting on the street um, in the West Village like hysterically crying on the street which is a thing that only really happens in New York in LA we cry in our cars like dignified people but in New York you cry openly on the street And I, like, sat down on the ground, which gross, and I cried hysterically into the phone, and she gave me a little bit of money that she had, and I am forever grateful that she did that because I was able to stay and finish the internship. I I don't honestly know where she got that money. It was like a miracle. (laughs) And um, I could never repay her for that. The hardest part of it was this feeling that I was going to fail at something that I knew I could be great at just because I was broke, right? So, like, anyone else, like, how was anyone else staying at the internship? Why were the other interns there? Like, how come I was the one that had to go home? You know, it's not because I'm not talented or hardworking or hilarious. You guys have heard the podcast. I'm very funny. It's because you can bust your ass and be all those things, and still, at the end of the day, you don't have any money. (laughs) So, in that moment, you feel like you don't get to ask for help you feel like your only choice is to give up and um you know if you were whacked out on drugs or lost in depression or anything like that people would say just go to a therapist everybody wants you to call and ask for help there's hotlines there's all this stuff obviously no one should be alone in times like that that's very true but what about when you've done your absolute best and spent all your money trying to make something beautiful happen that connects with people or that helps advance your career and then it's like Nobody wants to hear from you or help you because you did it to yourself. My guest today is Kevin Allison, who is intimately acquainted with that feeling. Um, You might remember Kevin because his career got off to an amazing start. He was one of the founding members of the incredible sketch comedy show The State, uh, which still holds up today. It launched the careers of Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter, David Wayne, Ken Marino, um, all the guys from Reno 911, all the ladies from Reno 911. Um, Kevin is also doing really well these days. His storytelling podcast, Risk, 
is hugely successful and he travels all over the country with it and I've performed on it so that's how you know it's successful because I've told a story on it. Kevin's show is a place where people share intensely personal parts of their lives and he sets the tone by sharing his own stories on a lot of episodes including his darkest moments of self-doubt. Here's a clip from an episode from 2015 of him talking about a moment when money in particular pushed him to the brink. The truth of the matter is that in uh, October of 2009 when we started risk i was penniless i was honest to god at the end of my rope i uh was way in debt and i had to go way further into debt to start this venture i had had 12 years of just being rejected and rejected and rejected by the entertainment industry I kind of felt that I'd been left behind by a lot of my friends in the industry. But at the same time, I had really shot myself in the foot with all the stage fright and just lack of confidence. It was a it was a rough time before I started Risk. I was really drowning in alcohol for a while there. And to be honest, I almost gave up on life uh, more than once. So... We're going to talk to Kevin today a lot about asking for help and about the ways that money pushed him right up to the edge and how he pulled himself back from that. The state, you know, we all met at NYU. We were all a bunch of theater and film students at NYU. We formed a sketch comedy group there. And we didn't know anything about the industry. In fact, we didn't even know anything about comedy. Like, there was no education available about comedy at that point. Um, But we did know one thing. We did know that we had this chemistry together that was just like intoxicating and like magical. We really and truly deeply believed that we had a uniquely funny chemistry together. And we really did think this group is our future. So we were actually ridiculous ridiculously blessed and lucky, maybe to an extent we didn't even realize at the time, that we did get executives from ABC and MTV and maybe a couple of other places to come see our greatest hits show uh, right after we graduated from college. And it was less than a year, I think, after we had graduated from college that we were on TV. The trick was, though... We didn't realize that, you know, Viacom, their official policy was, uh, look, you should be grateful that we're getting you on the air. Therefore, we so weird. That's that's still their policy. It's so crazy. (laughs) How weird. They've come up in this podcast so much. Well, that's how it was back then. I, I think that they've had some legal wrangling since then. But 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 yes, it was, you should be grateful we're putting you on the air. So we really don't need to be paying you anything. Now, the state, what was kind of unique about us was that we were not just the actors and the writers of the show, but we were also 
really kind of producing it. We were doing a lot of, most of, I think, the editing, you know, they're in the editing booth, uh, a lot of the filming. You I guys mean, were we, YouTubers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were kind of doing everything. Um, but we were only being paid as actors, you know, and it, it was funny. What? Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. So when it would time, when it would come time to that, they would lay us off, you know, because because they would do six episodes. Then when we were done, they would be like, all right, we're going to wait several months to see how if this gets any ratings and then maybe we'll hire you back. And we went through several periods of that. And every time we went through that, we had to go to unemployment. And the first several times we went to unemployment, we were like, oh, my God, our checks are the same. (laughs) Whatever unemployment, you know, like the whatever, like. 400 bucks a week or something like that. We were like, yep, this comes out to about the same as MTV. Unfortunately, I looked at Nirvana as being like, oh, well, that's that's the story of how careers work, right? You hit a tipping point, right? And then you're just, it's just up, you know, it's just rising up into the stratosphere from there. Right. Uh, in fact, I think that's the way that it works for maybe point zero 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 one percent of performers. Like I, I've even read Catherine Hepburn saying, who you know, as someone who had an a gargantuanly enormous career, right. she said, she said she had to learn that there, you know, in fact, it's not a straight you know, climb up a ladder. It's it's going up a couple of notches and then falling down and breaking your back and, you know, <laughs> gaining your health again and then starting to climb up the ladder again and then falling off again and gaining yeah. your health again. So she was like, that's much more of what she felt her career was like. And she wished that someone had warned her about that earlier. So well, did you know that? Did you know that when you graduated and you got the state deal? Like, did you think, oh, I'm going to be set for life? Or did you think? I really did. I really thought we are going to be together forever. You, we said it all the time. It was like a mantra between us. You, in fact, the most sarcastic and snarky and pessimistic of us at that time was Michael Ian Black. And but there's shocking. Docu- but there's documentary footage of him backstage talking about how, oh no, we're going to be around. We're we're going to be together forever. <laughs> so so it's amazing to look back and see that that was kind of our attitude. And I think that as time went on, especially people like Black and Showalter and uh, Tom and Ben, and they started wising up. I, I do remember one thing: Black started investing in our in our last like two seasons at at MTV. He started becoming very fascinated in the idea of investing. Even though we weren't making all that much money, he was just like, hey, look, I really got to start learning about putting some of it aside. Well, I always, I was raised in a family that, like, my parents made it a big priority to get us into good schools. So myself and my brothers and my sisters were always going to these schools where all the other kids were much richer. 
my parents also kind of they were very, 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 very devoutly Catholic. You know, kind of like your Kennedy Democrats. So they loved a lot of the figures in Catholicism, like St. Francis or Thomas Merton, or, you know, people who were all about humility and poverty and humbleness, right? My dad was way into, you know, pushing that side of Jesus's teachings where he's like, look, this woman had only two pennies, but she gave one to the poor, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, the righteousness of poverty. Exactly, exactly. So I, because I felt like I was a, from another universe. You know, I grew up gay, so I felt like, oh my God, I'm a freak. I have to play by different rules. I can't really relate to my parents. So I guess I'm just, I, I just fell into to the habit of spending what I didn't have and just kind of avoiding the consequences, avoiding the calls from debt collectors. So you were just spending all the money? So like other people were investing it and you were just like, fuck it, we're getting this money, let me spend it? Pretty much. I just didn't feel that there was enough there to be putting any away. JC, my, my partner now, she, she tells me, check your bank balance every day. Just go on the TD Bank app on your phone. No, I would sweat. I would I know I would... that's what I explained to her. I'm like, no, that's like deliberately inviting an anxiety attack into Just my ruin day. Your whole day. <laughs> you kidding that's me? That's it. That was the experience. The my experience with you know, during those years in the state and especially the years after the state was that really knuckling down and thinking about money would bring on panic attacks more than anything else. There's an amazing line in the John Cheever novel, Bullet Park, where he's talking about a particular character and he says, people with money don't understand. They just don't have it in the fiber of their brains to be able to understand that people without money walk around with a dark cloud of anxiety hanging right over their head and that that's a traumatizing way to go through life it affects the entire weather of the world you see around you this idea of oh my god how am i going to eat tomorrow or oh my god how am i going to make sure that the rent does get paid this month is truly haunting and scarring for so many people out there, the people who have money don't understand that they're kind of running through life not at all weighted down by that enormous, you know, dark cloud. So I think also the dark cloud becomes normalized. So, like, for me, I'm just like, no, but that's life. Like, everybody has that. Like, this is, like, just what you do. Right. I think that especially for, you know, like, I don't envy younger people today, millennials, because the whole financial situation in the country is even more extreme now than it was in the 90s. You know, it's like, to me, I was like, boy, it was fucking rough back then when I was literally prostituting myself. Uh, There's a story I tell on Risk about how I was literally selling my body for cash the weekend 
that the state ended up being picked up for series. And then I was like, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to pursue that line of work anymore. (laughs) I mean, it seems like a very zen kind of like, why save money in the first place? Because you can't take it with you, which is kind of a thing that I've been dealing with, too, is this feeling of like, I could get hit by a car tomorrow, so why am I saving money for who? Well, I think that it's very important to remember that there's always the wisdom of thinking what will continue to make me feel happy, right? Because as someone who had to give up alcohol and give up marijuana and give up junk food and, you know, I've given up a lot of things in the past couple of years, um, a lot of that process was realizing, okay, yes, having a few martinis right now would really make me a lot more happier or more excited or more groovy or whatever right now, but not in the long term. You know what I mean? And and so, yes, you could be hit by a car tomorrow. I know. It's such an addict way of thinking to be like, well, I should just go spend all my money on a trip right now because I'm going to die tomorrow. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I think the more I've been looking into Buddhism, uh, the more people, like wise people who are into it, have said to me, okay, but beware of the fact that some people latch on to a nihilistic view of it. uh, Some people, like, get into that feeling of, oh, okay, so if nothing, nothing is necessarily so then fuck everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas yeah. I, I, I think that there's there's a way, there's a there's a more balanced way to look at the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were, like, having success with the state, but also working side jobs and doing sex work and getting evicted, were you resentful of, like, were you like, I'm on television, this should not be my life? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I was resentful through a lot of the beginning of Risk, too. I would say to JC, I would say things like, we're getting a million fucking downloads a month. Like, what? you know, we're reaching so many people, and you're telling me, you know, I may not be able to, to move into... <laughs> the apartment we've been thinking of now because, you know, blah, 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 or whatever, or I have to cut back on this, that, or the other, you know? Um, and and she's always like, yeah, that's just the way it is. I mean, she's, you know, after the state broke up, I let that cloud of anxiety kind of rule the day. In 1996, right about then was when a lot of the folks in UCB were starting to teach and there was a lot of stuff going on with Luna Lounge and alternative comedy was starting to happen around New York City. I, unfortunately, was so kind of beat up and bruised, my ego, from having been in the state because the state was a pretty cutthroat, pretty, like, roast-each-other kind of group. And so I felt a little bit like, oh, my God, I... I'm such a nice guy. Maybe I'm not cut up to be a comedian. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe maybe comedians are just a rough crowd. So yeah. I was shy and had low self-esteem and was just really worried when the state broke up. So I did not 
get up on stage every night. I did not take any classes over at UCB. I did not make sure that I was networking and socializing on a very regular basis. Uh, I kind of did what a lot of addicts or alcoholics or people with, you know, social anxiety problems did. I kind of isolated a lot or or became a perfectionist and said, oh, I'm going to do this monologue a month from now. Eventually, risk was the answer to that problem. I was 39. I was so new to storytelling that if you listen to those first episodes, I'm literally just telling those stories for the first time and learning how to tell stories while creating a show about it, you know? Right. That, that's the way it should be done. You know, the guys, because because we hadn't had any sketch comedy training when we were at NYU, the guys in the state who broke away to do Reno 911, they were like, well, let's create an improv show. I mean, we've never had an improv class in our life, but we can learn while doing it. <laughs> so that's how Reno 911 came about. So you you didn't know what to do next and you needed to like make oh. money and you were sort of ashamed to be part of like the scene? Yes, I became a cater waiter was what it was. Instead mm-hmm. of putting as much time and en- energy as I could into doing as much creative work as possible, I became obsessed with, oh my God, what survival job can, can I possibly have that won't fire me? And so I went through a ton of them. Uh, but I landed on Cater Waiter, and I was constantly being recognized. You know, serving people with a tray and people being like, oh my God, you're on TV, because it was even still in reruns at that time. So one night, I'm at the Grammys. I'm pouring champagne in the VIP room at the Grammys, uh, either there or at Vanity Fair's party. I can't remember. Um, and... Aretha Franklin and Sarah McLaughlin walk in the room at the same time. And Sarah McLaughlin is like, oh, holy fucking shit, it's Aretha Franklin. I, uh, so she says to Aretha, uh, Aretha, can I get you a glass of champagne? So they come up to the bar, and Sarah McLaughlin looks up at me, and it's clear she recognizes me, and she says, she becomes accidentally that person. She says, oh my god, what are you doing here? And Aretha looks at her like, huh? And she says, oh, he's a very successful comedian. And Aretha just goes, mm-hmm. Right. Like, what does that even mean? What does a very successful comedian mean when you're the cater waiter? <laughs> so, yeah. So at the time, that was very painful. But now it's very funny to, as like the perfect example of what those years were like. You know, consistently being recognized while, you know, doing insanely... You know, there were some jobs that I was doing back then uh, that were like $8 an hour. And, and I right. had just, just been on TV. Um, so, yeah, it was very, very, very demoralizing. I There's a story that I've told on Risk. I think it's just called Conversations with God. Uh, this would have been like uh, four years after the state broke up. By that time, I was drinking hard. I was trying to get out of cater waitering. And I was kind of like, you know, at wit's ends with keeping the rent paid and all that kind of thing. And I started, I read that book called Conversations with God by uh, this guy named Walsh. And, And the thing of it is, he sits down with a pen, he writes a question to God, and then he lets the pen do the walk in. You know, he lets, he lets, 
like his hand like go limp while he lets God answer the question. Whoa, right? like a Ouija board. Exactly, exactly. And I, at the time, I was like, oh my God, here's some woo-woo magical thinking that's very interesting. Let me give this a try. So I started having those conversations. I still have that notebook. Um, and now that I look back at it, it's a, it's just a great look at the psyche of someone who's desperate and who doesn't know, you know, like where to turn next as far as, you know, like getting back on one's feet. Now that I've created risk and things have kind of like, you know, there are so, there's so much to be grateful for as far as risk goes. But what's interesting about it is that it combines so many talents and skills and experiences that come from my past. Experiences from both things that were very, very, you know, hard work, like, like the state, and experiences that were just like things that I was interested in when I was a child, and experiences like, you know, <laughs> ridiculous shit that I got into when I was drunk and avoiding being responsible and had no right, idea like you how couldn't, to get the you couldn't have done You couldn't have done risk like a minute before you did it. You talked about giving up, and then I listened to some stuff about um, from Risk about um, you talking about giving up like entirely and like maybe ending your life. And did any of that come from being like, well, all the money is gone, so I don't know what to do? Absolutely, absolutely. I've never told this story on Risk. Um, I do want to try to look back at it sometime and develop it, but I think that the time that I was most most at wit's end, I was definitely drinking a lot. I had discovered that just drinking straight vodka on the rocks was my thing, and I was, you know, I was drinking it, you know, like, you know, before noon and that kind of thing, and it can be very hard sometimes when you're struggling to see how you're going, how you can get from point A to point B, you know, uh, because it can be very mysterious, like how getting from point A to point B actually works sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I remember this was again, I was a bit, this was around about that conversations with God period where I'm about 29 uh, about to turn 30. You know, those those turnings of the decades, I think, can be really rough on people if they're as far as where they're at in terms of success as well. You know, 29 to 30 was rough, and then 39 to 40 was when I created Risk, was when I was like, oh my God, I've got to do something different. But I started having panic attacks uh, when I was 29, and one night, and I was living in Williamsburg back when no one else was, and I, I kept having these thoughts about the Williamsburg Bridge. And I remember one night, I, I couldn't get to sleep. And I just kept kind of like obsessively thinking, I should go down to the bridge. I should go down, to, if just to check it out. If just to look at like what it might be, the logistics of it all. No, I've got to get down to that bridge. And, I, and it was weird because, you know, if you've ever had a panic attack before, it can feel like you're on a drug. You know, yes. it can feel like you... You swallowed 
some sort of amphetamine or something like that, and you're, 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 you've overdosed and gone out of control. Yeah. And, and that was the night that I realized, oh my God, I, I've got to do something. So I called a friend who gave me the number of their doctor and I got on Paxil. Uh, that was the beginning of taking antidepressants for me. And that only just ended a few months ago. We always forget that, like I said before, we can ask for help, you know? And there are always other alternatives, other creative solutions for getting out of whatever hole you're in. Sometimes you just can't. Like at the time, I remember, I remember one night I was walking around Williamsburg crying and I was yelling at God because I remembered the line from the Bible, knock and the door will be opened. And at that time, what I meant was, I was saying literally to God, here I am knocking. I feel like I've been knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. When and where is the fucking door opening? You know what I mean? I think the answer is, there is no telling, you know, that that one does have to remain patient and resilient and not give in to super negative or super uh, specific, specific expectations, you know? Well, I think maybe the the door is like, at least at that point in your life, is like not being an alcoholic anymore. <laughs> Because if you don't have, like, my dad's whole thing is like, we don't have any money, we don't have any money, let me go buy a bunch of alcohol. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an, that's another little thing is, you know, there's this very interesting book called uh, The Little Book of Big Change. And mm-hmm. the woman in it, her whole thing was she was a binge eater. Uh, she would She would binge and then sometimes vomit, you know, that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, But she talks about how giving up habits like alcoholism or or binging or or, or whatever it is, sometimes you have physical stuff you can point to and be like, okay, I'm never touching alcohol again. Other times, it's got to be a little bit more nuanced. Like, okay, I'm going to avoid most of these kinds of foods, you know, but I still have to eat. And then in other cases, it's your very thoughts. Like, when you really get down to it, like our deepest ingrained habits are following thought patterns that have dug neural pathways in our brains and spiraling into similar emotional spirals. And that that, too, is something you can notice and step off of. The example that she gives, which I think is a really powerful one, is she compares, like, the urge to binge. She says, it's as if I am a driver driving my car down the road, and I come to a red light, And there's a passenger in the back seat that just starts screaming right into my ear. Run the red light! Run the red light! Run the red light right now! Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! And she says, at that point, it feels all throughout her body and mind like, holy shit, what choice do I have? I'm under the gun here. But she says... yeah. 
you can learn to be like, okay, there's the screaming. That's not necessarily real. That's not necessarily me. That won't even be here a couple moments from now. So let's just step off. And That's how I feel about spending money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Kevin is great. He's obviously a natural storyteller. And he seems like he's gotten to a really zen place when it comes to money. If you guys remember my conversation with financial psychologist Dr. Brad Klontz, he talked about rich person thinking and poor person thinking. And that rich person thinking doesn't spend the money that they're making. And poor person thinking spends a lot of the money that they're making all the time as soon as they get it. And I think Kevin had poor person thinking, which he admits to because of his family. And Michael Ian Black had rich person thinking, apparently, talking about investing his $400. So, you know, they were 21 when the state was getting successful. I'm 28. Do I have time to adopt Dr. Brad Klontz's rich person thinking that seems to have worked out pretty well for Mr. Ian Black? Only time will tell. (laughs) listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, tell all your friends who are also bad with money, also tell your friends who are oil barons or wealthy emperors. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman, Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Our engineer is Jeremy Underwood. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye! Yeah.